a king is coming, not earthly royalty, not someone of worldly fame, but the creator of all things, the savior of the world, he is coming again. Jesus is coming back. And the question that we need to ask and we'll be asking here this morning is, does the way need to be prepared for him? Does the way need to be prepared for him? And if so, what will that entail? And what does that mean? And so we're over here in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples had just heard Jesus describe the demise of their beloved temple. What you see standing here, Jesus said, right now, not long hereafter, it's going to, uh, it's just going to crumble. It's not going to exist the way you see it here. And thinking that Jesus was referring to the end of the world, they asked Jesus in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming then and the end of the world? They associated the destruction of Jerusalem and that temple with the end of the world and Jesus' coming. And so Jesus proceeds to explain to them or to give them, uh, his response involves two things. One, he gives them an awesome overview of what the world would expect to look like, what we would expect the world to look like prior to the second coming, the return of Jesus. And number two, what kind of people will be awaiting his return? What type of people ought God's people be as they await his return? And so in Matthew 24, in Matthew 25, one sermon, Jesus outlines what the world is going to be like prior to Jesus' return. And then secondly, he shares several stories to illustrate uh, the readiness of God's people for the time that they are to live in prior to his return. And among the identifying characteristics of those looking for his appearing, Jesus mentions those that will, in verse 13, do you notice that there? Those that will endure until the end, they shall be saved. And also in verse 14, it says, they will also be his witnesses. They'll also be preaching and sharing the gospel, not only verbally, but also through their lifestyle. Then Jesus goes on to share four stories. In Matthew chapter 24, he shares a story, and three in Matthew 25. The first story is the story of the faithful and wise serpent. Uh, Not serpent, servant, there it is. The faithful and wise servant. And uh, that is a V, not a P. And then, of course, you've got the ten bridesmaids. And then you've also got the businessmen who are distributing responsibilities to his employees. And then, of course, you've got that very familiar parable about the sheep and the goats. And there's a common thread in all of these parables, and they answer one question that Jesus poses. And it's in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45. We're going to put it up on the screen so we can all read it here together. Matthew 24 and verse 45. Notice, this is the common thread. This is the question that is asked. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? So this is the question that is being asked in these four stories. Who is the faithful and the wise steward? Who is the faithful and wise servant? The one who has been made master over the household. The one who's been given uh, stewardship, management over the goods of God to feed, to give food. And in this case, not only physical food, but also spiritual food to those in due season. Who are the faithful? Who are the wise? What is the common thread? The common thread is this, that readiness for the second coming of Jesus is not a matter of last-minute preparation. 
It's not a matter of last-minute preparation as if you're cramming for a final exam. Been there, done that. It's not like that. Or if, you, if, if, if a hurricane is barreling toward us, although, although urgency is definitely a part of the committed Christian's life, there's no doubting that. But readiness for the, for the soon return of Jesus, readiness for the second coming of Jesus is a matter, not a matter of last-minute cramming, but about steadily growing in the grace of God. That's what it involves. For example, notice in Matthew 25 and verse 13, at the end of the story, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, which we're going to be looking at here this morning, the parable of the ten bridesmaids in verse 13, notice what Jesus said as conclusion to this story. He said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. His command is to do what? Watch. To watch. Watch therefore. That refers to constant vigilance. That's what it refers to. Delightful expectancy. In other words, always being ready. Always being ready. So, in this story about the ten bridesmaids, the ten bridesmaids, do they tell us anything about preparing the way of the Lord? Because He is the King that is coming. He is the one that's soon to return. Does this story have anything in there regarding preparing the way of the Lord? And if so, how do we do that? What does it look like? The parable of the ten bridesmaids answers the question. Here it is. Let's read from verse 1 and down through the story. Matthew 25, Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves." And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Powerful parable. Perhaps you're reading this for the, some of you are reading this for the first time. Perhaps you've read this many times. We're going to take it verse by verse and try to understand what this parable is getting at, what Jesus is trying to teach us. In verse 1, it says, the kingdom of heaven. This has to do with what, friends? The church. The kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Ten bridesmaids, and they represent God's professed people. And these people profess a pure faith. They represent God's last day church. 
that is upholding the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, that has the testimony, the spirit of prophecy in their midst. This is representing those who have a pure faith. And what are these, what are they doing? What are these particular bridesmaids doing? They're waiting for something. They're waiting for the bridegroom's appearing. They're waiting for the bridegroom's appearing. The bridegroom represents simply the coming of Jesus. That's what these symbols represent. The bridesmaids represent the church who are preparing, lighting the way for the coming of the bridegroom who represents Jesus Christ and his second coming, you see. And what is the bridesmaid's responsibility according to the parable? They're out there, as I mentioned, to help illuminate the way, to help the bridal party arrive at the bridegroom's house. So initially, initially, does the parable have anything to say about any type of preparation the people of God are to be involved in, in anticipation for the coming of the king? Sure. It's, it's, there's evidence right there. They're, they are to do, they're to do what? They're to light the way, to illuminate the way to the bridegroom's house. Their role is vital in that the bridal party must end up at the final destination. The bridegroom wants to marry the bride. It's got to happen. Jesus is going to come for his church, you see. All right, number two, verse two. Let's go down. Now, of these 10 bridesmaids, notice, notice it says, five of them were wise and five were foolish. A line of demarcation is drawn. In the church, some act wisely while others act foolishly. And we'll see here in just a minute what that is and what makes the difference between these two groups. Right now, however, what we know is that we want to be among those that are wise. Amen? We don't want to be called a fool or foolish. We want to be among those that are wise. Now, it's the wise that show, what, show us what type of preparation is needed for Jesus' arrival. By way of contrasting the wise with the foolish, we'll learn something about preparing the way of the king and not misunderstand what we are expected to do. All right, verse 3. Let's continue with the story. So you've got the bridesmaids. There are 10 of them. Five are wise, five are foolish. Verse 3, and we'll read verse 4 as well. Now, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So here is why some are wise, and here, are some, here is why some are foolish. The wise carry what? Oil or extra oil because they've got, they've got their lamps, and obviously they're illuminating the way for the bridal party already. So it's not that they don't have oil, but they don't have extra they don't have extra oil, but the, at least the wise have extra oil, but the foolish, they don't have any extra oil. They don't have any extra oil. What is the lamp? What does the lamp in the bridesmaid's hands represent? It simply represents the Word of God. You remember the psalmist in 119, uh, 105, he said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word of God is in the hand of the church, lighting the way for the coming of the Lord. It's through the Word of God that the message of Jesus is proclaimed, and the church has the Word of God in their hand. And the oil that helps light that lamp, what does that oil represent? Over and over again in Scriptures, oil is used to symbolize the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah chapter 4, 
Zechariah saw uh, this, these olive trees and this golden oil running down into these vessels into a bowl that would help light the seven golden candlesticks in the sanctuary. And in, in chapter 4 and verse 14, the, uh, the Lord says to Zechariah, it's not by might, it's not by strength, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. The oil lighting those lamps represents the Holy Spirit, you see. So, in essence, the wise have the Word of God with the Holy Spirit, and the foolish, they have the Word of God, but they have no Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And what does that look like? Because if we are to come to terms with this parable, then we'll be well on our way to aligning ourselves with the wise and being in that awesome position of preparing the way of the coming of the King. So let me propose a couple of things here for us this morning. Number one, the difference between the wise and the foolish doesn't necessarily lie in the doctrine that they believe. The difference isn't in the doctrine that they believe, because we're told that they're all virgins. Both the wise and the foolish are virgins. They carry a pure faith, a pure doctrine from the Word of God. So the difference isn't in the doctrine they believe, but what the doctrine has done for them personally. That's where the rub is. It's not the doctrine they believe. They believe the truth of God's Word. But what has that doctrine done for them personally? Look, an oil lamp if you've ever used an oil lamp before, it isn't worth much on a dark night without oil. It's an oil lamp. You need oil in your lamp. Flashlights, what are they good for without batteries? You need batteries in order for them to operate. A lamp is just simply an instrument, and its only purpose is to make something happen. And what's it to do? What's a lamp to do? It's to shine the light. That's exactly right. So in this parable, as in real life, the light is neither the lamp, it's not the Word of God, and the light is not the oil, it is not the Holy Spirit, as in real life. It's not specifically doctrine, no matter how pure that doctrine is or how much is known, and nor is it the Holy Spirit. The light is the reality, and here it is, the light is the reality of a Christ-like life, a person transformed by the miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit, molded by biblical principles. That's what the light is, a person who is being transformed by the teachings of Scripture, the inworking of the Holy Spirit that is changing their lives. Now, one thing is clear. One thing is very clear in this particular parable. Bible-quoting, church-going members who have not been letting the Holy Spirit transform them are not preparing the way for the coming of the King. They are not. And they will shut themselves out of the kingdom when Jesus comes back. You can read that in verses 10 through 12. They came and they wanted to get in, but this, the Bible says the door was what? Shut. The door was shut. It's sad to realize that those who knew the way eventually become lost. And as I read in a great book once, sad to be busy selling peanuts that one misses the parade. So let's understand this. Let's understand this. The foolish are not lost because they couldn't answer doctrinal questions or didn't know their way around the Bible perfectly. They're not lost because of that. But because biblical information became an end instead of a means. That's the difference. The Bible didn't become 
or the Bible to them becomes an, an object of faith and not an instrument of faith. The object, if the Bible is an object of faith, uh, there is reverence for the Word, there is a knowledge of the Word. The Word of God may be on your bookshelf, it may, you may have a family altar, a place where you have the big family Bible open up, and the Bible has simply just become an object of your faith, not an instrumentality, an instrument of your faith. Faith, faith became or becomes merely a matter of the head, and it prevents a work that needs to be done in the heart. That's the difference between the wise and the foolish. The wise in this parable use the Bible for its intended purpose. And what's the purpose of the Bible? To bring us closer to Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Bring us closer to Jesus, to be drawn nearer to Him, to have a living connection with Him and to experience Him. This leads the way for us to say yes to whatever God says, whatever principles He puts forth in the Scriptures uh, becomes the law of our life and we let the Holy Spirit work that law in our hearts and in our lives. And so that's one proposition I put before us here this morning. The wise allow the Word of God to transform their lives. The foolish, they don't allow it. They make excuses. They step back and say, no, not for me. Now, another way, another way the Bible can lack the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is revealed in an interesting statement by my favorite author, and it's on page, it's on page 474 of the book Acts of the Apostles. Notice this, very interesting. She says, to many, the Bible is a lamp without oil. How is that? Because they have turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that brings misunderstanding and confusion. She says, the, the work of higher criticism, today we use the phrase historical critical method of coming to the Word of God, and this is what it does. In dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing the Bible is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's power, God's Word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. So, a critical or a skeptical approach to the Bible causes the effectiveness and power of the Word to be lost. A lamp without oil, a lamp without oil, or a Bible without the Holy Spirit, and the results are devastating on the character, thus contributing to lack of preparedness for the second coming of Jesus. The undermining of the Bible's sole authority and trustworthiness is generally performed by those who are intent on accommodating biblical truth with modern science and culture. And this leads many to deny the validity of the miracles and the working of the supernatural. Number two, those who accept some or, or even all of the Bible's miracles and supernatural events, but they maintain that the Bible is not fully reliable on everything it says since it contains supposed mistakes and discrepancies and inconsistencies and inaccuracies or even error. And this leads to explaining the source of the mistake and then how to identify, to identify them. For example, it's asserted that some mistakes occur in the Bible due to the Bible writers' limited knowledge or their cultural prejudice. Thus, attempts to explain away the Bible's very strong stand on homosexuality and gender roles. Well, the Bible writers were ignorant. They don't have the science we have today. And so, therefore, we can't apply what they've said in these areas. 
That's called accommodating the Scripture, allowing cult cultural preferences to interpret it for us, rather than accepting all of the Word of God as being inspired. Didn't Paul write to Timothy and say, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God? Not just a little bit here, and not just a little bit there, but all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so when a person approaches the Scripture in these two manners, either denying the miracles of Scripture, coming at the Bible with a very critical perspective, or just simply asserting that you can't trust everything in the Bible, that has the power to weaken the Scripture's influence in a person's life. A Bible without the Holy Spirit, a lamp without oil, you see. To be applying biblical truth to the life is a good thing. Amen? Applying biblical truth to life is a very good thing. To not do that will be absolutely catastrophic. But before anyone starts looking around, wondering whether the person next to them is at fault, listen, both the wise and the foolish both have a problem, don't they? What's their problem? According to verse 5, what does it say? They all fell asleep during the delay of the bridegroom's coming. They all fell asleep. Now, fortunately, the wise awaken, they sense the emptiness of their spiritual experience, and they determine to change. They're very determined to change. When the emergency comes, they're prepared. But when the emergency strikes the foolish, they behave like anyone else who, has, who knows nothing about the Bible. Why? Because they have been learning to lean on others to supply their spiritual strength for so long that their own faith has become atrophied. They're looking to others and trusting in others rather than what Christ can do for them. They discover, unfortunately, way too late, that courage, that peace, that trust and strength of spirit couldn't be transferred. Look at verses 7 through 9. Then all these virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answers saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to them who sell and buy for yourselves." Look, just as no one can breathe for another, no one can trust God for another. Can't do it. The Bible-believing, Bible-quoting, church-going, unregenerate member, unregenerate, unregenerate member will not be ready for the second coming of Jesus. I know that's hard. Those are hard words. Church-going, Bible-believing, Bible-quoting, unregenerate members will not be saved. They will not be saved. Somewhere in the life of the foolish, unlike the wise who are saying, okay, Lord, if that's what your word says, then okay, I'll do it. But unlike the wise, the foolish are still saying no. No. Somewhere in their lives, somewhere in their hearts, they're still saying, God, not that one. Can't give you that. Sorry. Too much for me to give. Somewhere they're still saying no. They're not acting on the truth. It is sad to know that men and women will be shut out of the kingdom of heaven by their own unfitness for its companionship. But there is fantastic news in the parable, friends. Fantastic news in the parable because the wise brides, wise bridemaids, they know exactly what God, who God is, they know exactly what they need to do and to be ready for the events that would take place prior to Jesus' return, the wise have oil, extra oil in their lamps. 
The light burns. Their light burns with an undimmed flame through the night of watching. Their shining light, which is the beauty of Christ's likeness of character, coupled with the sharing of their faith, both serving as two intertwined purposes, one working for the, for the illuminating of the way of the bridegroom, the preparing of his way, and secondly, to illuminate the way of travelers to be able to see their way to the kingdom of heaven. Two things. Preparing the way. Here we are, Lord. The light, is, the light is on for you. And Jesus comes preparing the way. And then, of course, shining the light all the way to the kingdom of heaven. Twofold purpose for this light that shines. In the book Christ Object Lessons on page 414, it says, Through the Holy Spirit, God's word is a light as it becomes a transforming power in the life of the receiver. By implanting in their hearts the principles of His Word, the Holy Spirit develops in men the attributes of God. The light of His glory, His character, is to shine forth to His followers. Thus they are to glorify God, to lighten the path to the bridegroom's home, to the city of God, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Their lives... The Word of God is a light as it becomes a transforming power in the life of the receiver. That's the light. It's powerful. Paul, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, he says those, uh, that God is the one who caused the light to shine out of darkness, is the one who has shined in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 7 and 8. He says, Is it not to deal bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out of thy house, when thou see the naked that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. Amen. Friends, we're all called to share, or we are all called to be the light of the world. Jesus was the light when he was here. And he gives that commission, commissions his church to be the light of the world. Not to just dispel darkness, but to prepare the way for the coming of the king. Not just to bless others, but to point them in the direction of their eternal home. God expects us to prepare the way for the coming of the king. So the responsibility is ours, but what a privilege it is to pave the way to point others in the direction of glory. Amen? Amen? So there are many. There are many from whom hope is departed. And friends, you and I can prepare the way for the coming of the King by bringing some sunshine into their lives. Many have lost faith and courage. And we prepare the way for the coming of the King by speaking words that make them smile and brighten their day, praying with them, and sometimes uh, praying for them and sometimes with them. There are those who need the bread of life, and we prepare the way for the coming of the King by sharing the Word of God with them. There are those who are suffering with sorrow, with guilt, and with fear, and we prepare the way of the King by brightening, bringing them to Jesus Christ, who washes away all their sins and cheers their hearts, with His abiding presence. Friends, won't you let your light shine? Won't you let your light shine? And by doing so, prepare the way for the coming of the King. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.